Yeah, I think it all comes back to the idea that, you know, the infrastructure in place for the 20th century climate, it needs to be fortified. <laughs> no, that climate no longer exists and the climate normals are shifting. So it's really adjusting, you know, construction and, and building plans around new climate normals. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. I'm Seth Heckeman of Isaiah Industries, and here joining me is co-host Todd Miller. So perhaps the biggest topic in construction today is how to make buildings more resilient. And by that, we're talking about buildings that can better withstand all sorts of weather extremes, including wind, heat, rain, ice, and snow. Uh, we regularly attend various industry update meetings and, and so much in recent years has been along the lines of research and building code changes. Uh, remember too, a few years ago when we visited Ground Zero uh, after Hurricane Harvey shortly, uh, shortly after the storm, how obvious it was that newer buildings built to current codes uh, fared much better, uh, outperformed uh, the older structures uh, around them. Uh, so because of this and other examples, year after year, uh, Hurricane Ida has been a, a big topic of conversation around here as well this year. Uh, because of this, it's it's been such a critical topic impacting and disrupting uh, the future of building and remodeling. And so we get to dig into that conversation uh, more deeply today. Our special guests are well-known national meteorologists, Crystal Egger and Catherine Posiv. Uh, these two, in fact, are at the very top of the list of the 40 leading weather and climate voices to follow in 2022. Uh, so we feel very blessed to have them here to share with us uh, today. Crystal, a little bit about each of them. Crystal is an Emmy award-winning host and meteorologist who has been the on-air talent in major markets such as Denver and Los Angeles, as well as the National Weather Channel. She is now president of Monarch Weather Consulting, a team of consulting meteorolo meteorologists and data scientists who help businesses prepare, prepare for and react to weather and climate changes around the world. Catherine, a certified consulting meteorologist, is executive vice president of the Monarch Weather Consulting Team, and she also serves as senior meteorologist and producer for NBC News, working with their flagship uh, shows, including Al Roker in the mornings with the Today Show and also the NBC Nightly News program. She has also worked in the past for the Weather Channel, and interestingly enough, Catherine was born not too far from here, uh, uh, those of us recording construction disruption in neighboring Dayton, Ohio. Uh, so, Crystal and Catherine, welcome to Construction uh, Disruption. It's a real honor, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yes, thank you for having us and my fellow Ohioans in the house. Yeah. <laughs> go Bucks. Go Bucks. There we go. That's right. And on, go Bengals coming up. And go yeah. Bengals. Yes, the Super Bowl just go a couple Bengals. days from now. Uh oh <laughs> Oh, that's true. Uh, Crystal is in San Diego, so, we're yeah, we're covering both sides of the game. So. <laughs> We'll see. I'm I'm having nightmares about Aaron Donald this week, oh. so uh, we'll see how it goes on Sunday afternoon. Uh, so uh, you both have incredibly impressive backgrounds as meteorology experts and leaders. Uh, so may I ask you both to start uh, here this conversation? What spurred your interest in weather patterns and forecasting? Sure, I'll kick it off. And speaking of Super Bowl, we know it's going to be a hot one here at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. I think. Catherine, one of the hottest on record, possibly, if we get close, really? close to 90. So The forecast this morning had it being number three warmest 
Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a nice warm stretch. It was only with you guys we would have learned that. So thank you. <laughs> yes. I believe in 19... 19- 1973, the Super Bowl was 84 degrees in Los Angeles yeah. the last time uh, Los Angeles hosted. So fun facts. Actually, Catherine is full of weather tidbits. She's the tidbit queen. So we'll get a lot of that out of the discussion today. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> um, sorry, we're off topic. But I did grow up here in Southern California. So I don't really have a wild, exciting weather story as to what got me involved in meteorology. I initially studied communications and dabbled in marketing and PR for a while. And then on a whim, I had a a girlfriend who wanted to do a radio TV class. And we went at night to a city college to take this this class. And we had our own news station called News Scene. And my professor had me do the weather a lot because I was comfortable with ad-libbing. We don't have a script. We really just have to chit chat like this. And I loved, I loved that part of broadcasting. And she used to pull me aside and say, you should consider this. You seem comfortable. And I thought, well, I really need to know what I'm talking about if I'm going to do this. <laughs> and I, I loved math and science. And so putting the puzzles together to tell a weather story was really challenging and exciting. And I thought I can talk to you know my dentist about the weather, my grandparents, my kids, everybody everybody cares. It's universal. And so I started a meteorology program through Mississippi State University and loved it. And the the rest is history. So that's my, my in into meteorology. Catherine's story is way more exciting. Well, it's not that it's more exciting. It's, you know, we all kind of have that that different start. I am one of those, I, I like to call it a moment meteorologist where there was that one moment. Usually when you hear about meteorologists who talk about this, it happened at a really young age. So I was six years old in Dayton, Ohio, when I decided I was going to be a meteorologist. And the moment was, you know, those of us who are familiar in, you know, Western Ohio, weather, you know, you get a lot of really big thunderstorms. You know, they're coming out of the Great Plains. They're in the summertime. They were just violent, keep you up all night, lots of lightning. So I was that kid who would run into the parents' room when I was scared, which is funny to think I became a meteorologist. But, you know, I was at this party with my twin sister, bunch of six-year-olds around, and this mother comes into the room and she's like, bad weather is coming, everybody go home. So she sends us out into it. So she clearly was not watching the Weather Channel, Crystal, because the storm was already (laughs) there. And we're running, and I remember the sky was green, and at that point I just knew green, sky equals bad. And all of a sudden, this roar of wind comes through and a pea green funnel cloud goes right over the street we were running down. And of course it was gone an instant. I'm looking that direction because that's exactly where it went over the trees and it stopped me in my tracks. Like I was not scared. It was like fear to curiosity in a second. And I was like, what was that? I want to see it again. And I got home, you know, soaking wet and told my parents that I was going to study that and just kind of pointed out to the storm. So, you know, Ohio is what gave me my love. Uh, my family relocated when I was 10 to the Washington DC area. And so I attended school at Virginia Tech, helped kick off the meteorology program there. And like Crystal said, rest is history. My first job out of grad school was the Weather Channel where I met Crystal. Those are very neat stories both of you have. And they are different, um, but but really good stories. So I, maybe I'm way off base on this. It kind of seems to me, going back in my memory bank, that um, as women in meteorology and, and weather 
you two are kind of trailblazers of, of women in this field. Am, am I correct on that? Or, or are there others we should be um, you know, thinking about also as far as uh, maybe who blazed that trail a little bit earlier? I'm just curious. Um, your, the short answer is yes. You know, many women have come before us and, you know, they helped inspire us and, and pave the way, you know, to be like, hey, I can do that. You know, it's always when I work in television on that side, it's so important to be able to see yourself on the screen, you know? So growing up as a young girl, knowing I wanted to go into weather, I was watching the Weather Channel and I was watching women like Vivian Brown. As I got a little bit older, I was watching Stephanie Abrams, Maria LaRosa and and be well, like, sure. I can do that. They can do that. I was watching Crystal when I was in graduate school with, I didn't know I would end up at the Weather Channel at the time. So, you know, Crystal is one of my idols. Until I got to the Weather Channel, all of my mentors were men and they were fantastic. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but I was in research and science and it wasn't until I got into broadcast, I, I got to experience, you know, the science with more women and they've all helped me to where I am today. Very neat. I definitely, in my early days, I'm a lot older than Catherine. <laughs> Thanks for giving that away. Um, I, I took my very first job in Idaho Falls because you've got to start somewhere and make your mistakes where a lot of people don't know you, especially on television. Um, but Idaho and then Denver, I definitely had male mentors and role models. And I was just so honored to get a job at the Weather Channel because I was watching Kelly Cass, Heather Tesh, Samantha Moore, Jen Carfagno, and I really looked up to them. And I, I feel things have really shifted. There's a lot more female representation now in the local markets as well. seems like Weather Channel really sort of set the stage for that. But I want to brag about Catherine for a second, because in the world of business consulting, which we're doing now, there are not a lot of women. And, you know, Catherine and I took this brave leap of faith together. And she actually became a certified consulting meteorologist, a CCM, and is one of very few women in the world with that designation. I think there's 250 active CCMs in the whole world. And Catherine's like one of 5% women. Wow. So that's pretty cool. That's very cool. Fantastic. Congratulations. Well, congratulations to both of you. And thank you for all the great work that you're doing out there to help protect all of us and keep us all more aware also. So I'm thinking of you in Idaho Falls. Did did you get sent out in the middle of storms to do on location shoots and all, all of that stuff? Oh, yeah. Um, when you when you first start, you you're a one man band, a one woman band. <laughs> you really have to wear a lot of hats. So I'd go out and do a, a weather-related story or an environmental story, and you would set up your camera, shoot your own stand-ups, go back, edit the story. You, you learn all of the skills to eventually make it to a bigger market. I would say my worst experiences being in the field were, were in Denver. I worked there for over four years on a morning show, and I was the meteorologist in the field for the beginning. So uh, 2 a.m., I'd wake up and head to a different ski resort or get stuck on the side of the foothills in Boulder or Golden, Colorado, oh, where the winds were up to 100 miles per hour and just trying to hang on. So the weather was pretty wild there. We did a little tornado chasing at times, and yeah, that was my real experience being in the elements. 
They can get some violent stuff in Denver, especially now in the summers. Uh, you hear about the hailstorms. Oh, yeah. All of that as well. So, um, Crystal, this is a little bit off topic, but I still have to ask. So, um, you are founder of A Sunny Space, which is a documentary and lifestyle video production company that focuses on telling the stories of trailblazing women and, and brands and how they're reshaping the world. Um, I just love to hear a little bit about that. I don't want to get too far off topic, but would love to hear a little bit about what you're doing with that. Sure. And thanks. Thanks for being interested. Um, you know, when I left broadcasting four years ago, I was in Los Angeles and I was on a morning show. We talked a lot about um, like the entertainment world and Kardashians and housewives. And I just, I'm raising daughters and I felt that we were moving away from real role models. We are highlighting these influencers that are not having a positive influence on our young girls. And I left LA and I didn't know for sure what I was going to do. I, I knew I wanted to keep going in the weather world somehow. And luckily, Catherine and I, we were hired by a, an international technology company and started working as weather and climate advisors. Um, that's what kicked off this whole idea of Monarch. But on the side, I had this creative passion project to tell stories about these trailblazers and really give them a pedestal. And so I was able to collaborate with a women's denim brand and do a documentary series as part of their marketing efforts. And I'm so proud of that project. So right now we're working on what's next um, as I navigate mostly Monarch. <laughs> yeah, I'm no doubt I know how you do everything. You're very busy. Well, Seth and his wife are raising two beautiful young daughters. So you got some good content there to <laughs> check out at a sunny space and yeah. some, some good things to uh, inspire them with. Good stuff. Well, uh, transitioning back to uh, weather and construction, as I mentioned earlier, you know, whenever we go into uh, our industry events and meetings where uh, the whole industry is getting together and talking about, you know, what the future looks like, what we be uh needing what we need to be paying attention to, uh, it's impossible for us to not be involved with topics relating to banking buildings more capable of withstand, withstanding extreme weather. Uh, I know that the list is incredibly long, but what are some of the changes in weather patterns that the construction industries, those of us in it every day, uh, absolutely must respond to uh, for the safety and, prote and protection of uh, humanity and those we love? So I'll kick us off here and, you know, we'll keep it casual. Crystal, please feel free to jump in. But, you know, the the first things that come to mind, you know, one, hurricanes, you know, it's on everybody's mind. We've had two above average seasons in a row that were just, you know, record setting in multiple ways. And as the atmosphere warms and as the oceans warm, you know, there's science everywhere. I'm constantly, I have my finger on the pulse of all the latest research and all the studies it's we're going to have more hurricanes that rapidly intensify right before they hit the coast. So that, you know, leads to preparation issues, but also stronger hurricanes that are making landfall at higher intensities. Also, as waters warm and that warming water moves farther north with time, we are worried that, you know, there could be the potential for more landfalling tropical cyclones at higher, you know, north latitude cities like New York, like Boston, like Beijing, Tokyo in the Pacific. So, you know, 
Buildings in Florida are constructed to withstand tropical cyclone winds. Buildings in New Jersey and New York are not. And so, you know, when Tropical Storm Isaias slammed the tri-state in 2020, you know, we all saw the headlines of the extreme wind damage, you know, and then the power outages that lasted for weeks. So that that is one for sure. The tropical cyclones, you know, we'll get into a little bit more, but Tornado Alley may be shifting east when we're talking about increased vulnerabilities there. And of course, wildfire seasons getting more intense and longer. Yeah, I think it all comes back to the idea that, you know, the infrastructure in place for the 20th century, um, for the 20th century climate, really, it, it needs to be fortified. <laughs> you know, that climate no longer exists because we always say that our, we don't like to turn people away and talk about global warming. It's more about our changing climate. Our climate has been changing for hundreds of thousands of years. And the climate normals are shifting, right? We had a fire yesterday here in Laguna Beach in February. We have record heat. We're flirting with red flag warnings. This was not the case when I was growing up. We had a well-defined fire season. And now if the ingredients are there, it can happen any time of year. So it's really adjusting, you know, construction and, and building plans around new climate normals. That was certainly a loaded answer of plenty we have to be thinking about and worrying about and covered every area of the country, right. um, you know, into that uh, into that conversation. So, um, Catherine, I'm curious. So that you know, you meant you talked about hurricanes coming in and that rapidly increasing before it hits the coast. Is so that's something new and unique. And what is your? How would you explain to a, a layman about why that is happening? So it all has to do with the warming temperatures. So basically, warm the warm water. That's the fuel. A hurricane for the engineers out there. You know, a hurricane is a heat engine. So as long as it's kind of recycling all of that warm water, it's going to keep going. And, you know, the warmer the water, the higher the echelon that that storm can go in terms of wind speed. So, you know, we're looking at all the data, you know, decades and decades. And the trend line is doing this on the number of hurricanes that are rapidly intensifying. So it's interesting when you really break down the science, we can't yet say with high confidence that climate change or our changing climate equals more hurricanes. We can't yet say that, but what we can say is changing climate equals more rapidly intensifying hurricanes. So last year at the you know risk of getting the stats slightly wrong, it was at one point five out of six of the hurricanes we had in 2021 all went through rapid intensification. Nearly every single one we saw did it. And quickly, the definition is a storm that basically increases in you know a certain level of wind speed within 24 hours so that's how you define um, rapid intensification but the problem is as these waters warm and it's happening at the coastlines you look at the gulf of mexico and the warming trend in the gulf of mexico these storms and these cyclones can just continue to increase in intensity 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 boom until they hit the land and we saw it with laura we saw it with ida this year when it hit New Orleans, um, it's a major problem. And Catherine, wouldn't you say that we are seeing the progression and track farther northward, maintaining tropical characteristics, which is why tri-state area would have significant flooding because you don't just have an average nor'easter type event. It's actually tropical in nature. And that's just a tremendous amount of rainfall. So, you know, that 
those New England states just got hit within the last week with a significant winter storm. I, I'm assuming this doesn't just apply to rainfall and what we think about hurricanes, but these winter storms as well be hitting, you know, uh, obviously they only hit in the north, but hitting more frequently and bring, uh, being more susceptible to those also. It seems counterintuitive, right, Catherine? It's like, it's the idea of weather extremes, more available moisture for heavy rain events, but also for heavy snow events. And then, you know, even what happened in Texas last February with the massive cold outbreak, um, you know, that has to do with the changing jet stream. And Catherine's really an expert on that if she wants to jump in. Yeah, I'm smiling because one of the best ways I can get people's attention lately to even listen, you know, to a topic on climate change is when I say, did you know climate change can create bigger snowstorms? And they go, hmm. what? You know, right? Because everyone is like, you know, I'm sure we've heard the jokes, I'm shoveling six inches of global warming off my sidewalk, right? And I'm like, yes, you are. Because like you said, you know, just the same way that warm water can fuel hurricane, warm water can fuel a nor'easter. And so all it takes is more water in the atmosphere and if it's cold enough to be snow, think of it like a sponge that's wetter. So when you wring it out, more is going to come out and you can get more snow. Uh, that is pretty specific to the Northeast in terms of cities that are actually seeing an increase trend in snow with climate change. Um, but that's happening right now and we're seeing it. And then, you know, to Crystal's point about the cold outbreak in Texas, that's another thing where as the Arctic gets warmer, cold outbreaks will get colder and you're, you know, you kind of have to let that sink in. And, and again, you're like, how? Well, when you're warming at the poles, it's disrupting the polar vortex. And we've all heard that term. We love bringing it up every winter. It's basically vortex that holds the cold air bottled up at the, the poles, both of them. And when you have Arctic warming, it weakens it. And so the lobes can break down and they can make it all the way down to Southern Texas. So those types of cold outbreaks at farther south latitudes are likely to become more common because of the warming atmosphere. Interesting. Uh, thank you for all of that. And thanks for bringing up the Texas storm. Cause that was in our list of questions because last year we viewed it as, you know, such a, a freak fluke occurrence. And then just again, within the last couple of weeks, they had another cold outbreak. And all of a sudden we're talking about, you know, walls that aren't insulated around water pipes and things that uh, then start impacting us in construction, having great, you know, those homeowners being greatly susceptible to the negative effects of that. Uh, so in reading ahead and doing some research uh, on Monarch and what the work you all are doing, uh, read something that I had not thought about before, and that was how changing weather patterns are impacting pollen counts and perhaps even types of pollen uh, in certain areas. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And do you think that has an impact on the need for indoor air quality purification, You know how that then crosses over and impacts those of us in construction? Sure, I'll take this. I'm actually moderating a, a webinar around this topic next week because we supply wildfire smoke data to a, an allergy and asthma app called Daily Breath. And one of, one of the topics right now is really like, how do we understand our changing climate and how it relates to respiratory health? And certainly if we're, we're seeing warmer temperatures, our seasons are shifting and we're actually noticing longer allergy seasons. And then on top of that, um, you know, with more days above freezing, 
that creates a longer growing season, which in turn affects the onset of allergy season. Um, there's the idea that having more heating is going to increase ground level ozone. We know that for sure. And that can lead to respiratory issues. And then all this talk we've already done about warming ocean temperatures and how we're getting more evaporation in the atmosphere and heavy rain events. And that can also lead to more algae bloom, concerns about mold, you know, microorganisms can grow more efficiently in those environments. So you've also got the, the wildfire threat and wildfire smoke and how that impacts air quality. So certainly I think the need for indoor air quality and purification is vital as, as we monitor these changes. Sounds very doom and gloom, doesn't it? I have a husband <laughs> with asthma. And I, um, we, so we take it very seriously. If there's a wildfire in the area, just doing everything we can to protect his respiratory health. Sure. And, and Catherine, like you said earlier, those fires are becoming more and more common. Uh, so we have a couple of uh, salespeople out west, and we tune into our Tuesday morning uh, sales meetings. And yeah, it, even the the air in their offices looks a little hazy, depending on what's going on in the area. And so, uh, it's a lot of people are living with those conditions and having to think about how we control the uh, interior living spaces of our structure to uh, accommodate them. So, um, thank you for the explanation. I'm glad we have really smart people like you guys understanding the millions of variables coming together on these issues. So. It's like cannonballs. Everywhere you look, climate's got a footprint. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, we always joke that it's, it's like job security for us because, <laughs> it, you know, the weather's ever-changing. The climate is such a hot topic right now. And, of course, we're so passionate about what we can do to help, and especially in the environmental health space. So um, we love what we're doing. It's nice talking with you two, and you are, you kind of clarified it and tried to position early on, uh, not making this a partisan or hot topic issue, but looking at the realities of um, whether what we think the bigger picture is ultimately, there's still considerations to be made currently. So thank you. When we think about changes in weather patterns, we often think about coastal areas and other areas that were already at risk, um, but really there are impacts in other geographic areas. Uh, Catherine, you talked about Tornado Alley and how that's shifting to uh, to new areas. So uh, what can you tell us about those? Yeah, so this is another one that's not so you know intuitive until you start to think about it and, and then it gets you know a little worrisome. So, you know, I mentioned my my love for weather came from a severe storm. And so my niche even now is it's tornadoes and severe weather. And I go out to the Great Plains every year and I, I chase storms and I chase tornadoes. And, you know, the Great Plains are, they've been Tornado Alley, you know, for a reason. It's where all of the ingredients come together to form a tornado and why it's, you know, safe. I use that, you know, with air quotes, safe to go out and chase there is because it's flat. It's open. You have great visibility. It's a lot of, you know, farmland and, and not as high of a population. And what I'm getting at there is now research is showing that with our changing climate, Tornado Alley is shifting east, more into the Mississippi Valley, into the southeast, uh, parts of the Ohio River Valley. And, you know, what happens when you get that is, you know, you have higher population centers there. You have worse visibility, you have hills, trees, those of us who, you know, have been through those regions. And you have a higher instance, or I should say density of mobile home construction, you know, to get to this construction angle. And, you know, that really, really worries us um, because, again, 
if you've got more mobile homes out there and, and places that, you know, don't have automatic storm shelters, a lot of places that may not have basements, you know, to be able to get people out of harm's way if, you know, tornado frequency is increasing farther east. And we just saw it happen. You know, Crystal, you'll hear Crystal and I bring up constant current events of the December tornadoes in Kentucky, the Mayfield, Kentucky EF4 tornado. It also hit Dawson Springs. Uh, Bowling Green was hit by a tornado. That was, you were seeing the climate influence there in a nutshell, that it happened in December when more winter tornadoes will be more common as well. And then in the zone, which is exactly where we expect to see that shift happen. Wow. Now, certainly remember uh, the Kentucky tornadoes so recently. Uh, those of us here in West Central Ohio, the Memorial Day tornadoes, just, you know, the springtime when you expect it a little bit more. Right. But uh, certainly those st- type of storms are, are top of mind also. Let's switch gears a little bit, talk specifically about fire for a moment, which has um, been top of mind for a lot of us in construction here in the last couple of years, because um, we've fielded a ton of calls uh, from architects, builders, and property owners uh, working to rebuild after the devastating Northern California fires from a few years ago. Uh, that re- you know being so devastating that that rebuilding is going on still uh, a few years later. Um, and of course, there have been you know fires in countless other areas as well. Uh, many of those are in areas where folks are wanting to build closer to nature um, also, which is driving them closer to where the fires are going to be. Uh, what can you tell us about wildfires, what those causes are, how it relates to climate, and uh, what else do we need to be thinking about? Wow. Yeah, I know, Catherine, you have some great stats here, so I want you to chime in too. But I would say that um, of being here on the West Coast, of course, we're seeing longer, more intense wildfire seasons. I talked earlier about there not really being a definition to the fire season. We've had fires this week here in February. Um, what happened in Colorado, uh, you know, building, they call it what, an urban firestorm, Catherine? It's, yes. You know, building close to, building in such a vulnerable area up against the foothills and then going through extreme drought and having us significant wind event come along during the month of December. It's really unheard of, but that was the case uh, with the Colorado fire. And, and as you know, those, those homes were completely destroyed. So I think understanding climate related risk is critical. Uh, One, one way to go about the building process too, is just to have, um, Meteorologists assisting with better planning of project project activity that can certainly help and improve efficiencies, but really knowing what you're up against to to make sure there's a fire mitigation plan with the landscaping and uh, we're not experts in building material by any means, but um, a lot of these areas we're building into are just extremely vulnerable to fires. So I think we need to understand that first and foremost. Yeah, that wildland urban interface zone is getting very crowded and, you know, crowded with buildings. And you mentioned it, Crystal just mentioned it, that we're just building in these transition zones that are meant to separate wilderness from, you know, urban areas. So, you know, they're meant to burn. They've been burning for, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of years, uh, and they'll continue to burn. And I looked up the stat for this podcast to make sure I got it right. You mentioned the wildfires in, in California a few years ago. So of the top 20 most destructive wildfires in California history, it's it, the metric is buildings destroyed. 
uh, 17 out of the top 20 have all occurred since 2000. And if you break it down even more, 13 of the top 20 since 2015. And, you know, that's a little bit more recent memory for us. And of course, the Colorado one that just happened that Crystal mentioned quickly like this became the Colorado's most destructive wildfire in history. So it seems like every single one, it's like the bat game, you know, is becoming the most destructive in history. So I'm curious, is it just building trend that has driven uh, putting houses in these places where we shouldn't uh, shouldn't be or we're smart enough to not previously? Uh, or did codes change? I don't know. I don't know what the question is there. I think a lot of it has to do with population expansion and sure. and a lot of people wanting to get out of the city and live in those more wilderness type areas, especially in the in the wake of the pandemic. I know. Um this idea of working from home has opened up more possibility to, to be outside the city, wouldn't you say? It's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we talk about fire. On the other end of that, we've already talked a little bit about ice. And, you know, we go back again to the Texas situation a year ago, and homes certainly weren't built and prepared for that. And really, I don't see a lot of change yet in the building codes to encourage homes in those areas to be be more resilient when it comes to cold. But it certainly sounds like that's something that a change that needs to occur. Would you agree? Absolutely. Catherine, especially, you know, we do some power outage modeling and pipe freeze modeling. And I just think it's important for construction engineers, um, you know, builders, property insurance folks to really understand what's at risk with these changing climate normals so that they can better prepare the buildings going forward. Yeah. And, you know, back to wildfires quickly, an interesting uh, information that we learned a couple years ago is that wildfires burn hotter than house fire. And so, you know, you have a higher frequency of all of these wildfires that are, you know, hitting buildings and, you know, it comes down to melting point. You know, the example I remember that I learned, it, which was like in a house fire, you know, all jewelry might not melt, but in a wildfire it will. And, you know, then that you can kind of try to translate that to engineering of what types of materials might be able to withstand higher heat if they're at a higher propensity for a wildfire to come through. Uh, so it's all about that kind of almost thinking down to bolt level with construction uh, to try to mitigate issues with all of these extremes. And we are seeing some changes occurring in some building materials. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is uh, there's a number of people working on vents for attics and structures that close down in the event of a wildfire so that they can't bring in the heat and the burning brands. But, you know, one of the things still that I see is that the process to change building codes is very slow. I mean, I've lived that a few times and it's just the code cycles themselves means that it's going to be at least three to five, maybe even seven or eight years if you want to enact a change to the building code. So if someone out there is thinking about building a new home, um, would it also be wise for them to think beyond the code and to consult a meteorologist or someone like Monarch in order to get your input and feedback as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one thing we do is we can model out temperatures going forward. Uh, we 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 have this pro 
project called Climate 360, where we look at various weather parameters, whether it's precipitation, um, understanding carbon emissions, temperature, um, wind, uh, just to see what the risks would be. And then to work with the builder, I suppose, on the most resilient home (laughs) for the changing climate. But I think we we work with a construction engineering uh, risk management platform. And what we help them do is we provide global data because they are global. So helping them understand where they're expanding and what the risks are going to be. So there's essentially a geolocation for each risk so that it can help stakeholders fully understand all the natural hazards they're up against and you know, best prepare for the future. Yeah, I would say a lot of our clients, especially early on, I would describe them as visionaries because, you know, they kind of came to us and they were like, I feel like this climate change situation is important. I don't know what it means for me yet, but I want to speak with experts. And, uh, you know, not everybody has caught on yet. And to your point, you know, they really, they really need to. And it's everything from local level or a household level to a big corporation that needs to be thinking about this. Well, I certainly feel like I am learning so much that needs to be brought to the building uh, industry, especially to building products manufacturers uh, to be thinking about these things. So tell me a bit more about who um, the typical clients are at Monarch. Who are you currently working with? And it sounds like maybe there's a little bit of inroads into construction, but not a whole lot currently. Um, love to help you grow that, figure out how to grow that because it's so important. But who are some of your typical clients right now? What types of businesses? Yeah, well, we are doing a lot in the agriculture space, which is, um, as you know, <laughs> as reliant on the weather and climate as anyone. So definitely agriculture. And we work with a private satellite company. So we're in the aerospace industry there, uh, helping them task their satellites for global flood damage. And we're also working on a wind modeling API they can use to, to understand wind damage. So it's not just Catherine and I, her and I are, you know, sort of the face of Monarch. And we do a lot of the reach out to potential clients and project management, but we have a whole team of data scientists. And what they do is they look at past, current, and future weather, and as we always say, turn weather into impact. We create modeling and APIs specific to what industry we're we're working with and what they're interested in. Um, And then in the insurance space, helping with underwriting and understanding physical risk to assets. Um, not only nationally, but globally. So our team we work with, they, they worked in the Intel community for decades providing this type of information. And now we're getting into the commercial space. Yeah, a lot of the clients Crystal just mentioned, uh, it seems like all roads lead to insurance somehow. You know, even if an insurance company is not our direct client, the private satellite company is, you know, they're using our flood modeling to make sure they position their satellites correctly to get photo before and after photos of the flood that then is important for the insurance industry and you know agriculture losses on a farm due to do it you know due to a hailstorm insurance issue uh you know xyz it all kind of ends there if you will we've also done forensic meteorology which is really exciting um looking back on a large weather event 
One example was actually here in Southern California. A lawyer approached us because uh, there was wind damage, significant wind damage to one of their the commercial properties that they own, and they needed to better understand what happened. You know, how strong were those winds, and was it part of the insurance policy? Would it have been covered? So we we get to investigate and go deeper and. And Catherine can actually present in court having her CCM. So, yeah, that's the forensic side of meteorology. That's pretty interesting stuff. And I know a number of building engineers who get involved in that. And sometimes it does overlap with a weather event or occurrence uh, as well. Um, You know, they say that the, and I think this is true, the number one consumer or purchaser of roofing in United States is State Farm Insurance uh, because of all the hail claims. So there's so much tie in here, obviously, between construction and uh, weather. Now, of course, you know, as you said, you're not construction experts, but just as you look at what's happening, you think about it, are there any particular building materials that come to mind for you that uh, gee whiz, I'd be avoiding that or I'd be thinking about ways to fortify or shore up this area of the structure. I guess it's geographically driven to some degree. Ooh, that's a good question. I'll jump in quickly just because my brain as a you know tornado researcher and a tornado chaser, it goes back to mobile homes. I realize that's not like a single material, but mobile homes, you know, they scare me everywhere I go. And, you know, we're not, tornadoes get a lot of attention, you know, because of the destruction and what they look like, of course. But, you know, as we get more extremes, we're going to get more just kind of large scale wind events, you know, and wind storms, like what happened in Colorado, for example. And those are going to turn over mobile homes. So it's just, you know, all of these extremes are going to put anyone, you know, who lives in one at risk from, you know, any type of, you know, whether it be even flood, you know, a tropical system, it's going to turn one of those right over. I I have a comment there, too, when it comes to energy efficiency and air conditioning, for example. Uh, I live fairly close to the coast here in San Diego, and all of my neighbors have put in air conditioning units in the past five to ten years and never needed them prior. So not only has the climate normal shifted with the high temperature, but even we're experiencing more humidity because of the evaporation happening with the warming ocean waters. So overnight temperatures are more uncomfortable. And if you have a two-story home, it can be brutal sleeping upstairs at night without air conditioning. So I've seen a, a big movement in air conditioning units in these coastal areas. You know, one of the topics we've also talked about here on construction disruption is offsite construction. And off-site construction doesn't necessarily mean the mobile homes anymore. And, you know, you're right here in the Midwest. I mean, there's always this statement, why are mobile homes always magnets for tornadoes? And in reality, that isn't the case. It's just they're not built to withstand them. So if they do get hit, the results are devastating. But, you know, one of the things that they are talking a lot about on the new face of off-site construction today is the buildings are actually more resilient, they feel, than field-built buildings in some cases. So there may be some hope there. But again, a lot of it comes down to affecting changes in the building codes to 
to be able to withstand this. I mean, I love the name of your podcast, Construction Disruption. I think a lot of that would have to do with the weather. But what about, what are you guys up against right now with supply chain disruption? And how is that impacting your industry? I'm still waiting on an extra room. We were supposed to get seven months ago, (laughs) a pre-manufactured room. Yeah, you may be waiting another seven months. Is, is the answer? <laughs> yeah, it's oh, no. uh, it's yeah, converging of so many different variables. You know, kind of similar to all the different variables we're talking about here. But it it has certainly turned things upside down. Uh, whether it's on the import side of lead times being six weeks and now being twenty six weeks and cost being multiplied that much. Um, you know, COVID certainly did a number on so much of domestic production and manufacturing also that just really pinched supply uh, or yeah, pinched supply demand and it slowed down. So all of a sudden it's backed up in a hole that it's going to take years to dig out of. So, um, and, but the, the cold, sna- I, we were talking about Texas earlier. Um, some of these disruptions date back to that winter storm a, a year ago of chemical plants that you know were shut down for a week and uh you know with all that ice and um you know covid came afterwards and and made it even worse but it uh these events certainly have an impact on the economy as a whole much further than the immediate area that they hit no question what was the lead time on that forecast Catherine? i'm sure you were very involved with nbc and oh yeah i mean it was several days in advance. I do remember seeing, you know, obviously our certainty in a forecast gets lower with time out, but I remember seeing a climate prediction center outlook. You know, they go one, you know, they could go anything from six to 14 days out to a month to two months. And they started showing that blue, they only do above or below average temperatures, kind of what they're guessing. So it was starting to show up, you know, probably a few weeks and not maybe more than that off the top of my head, but there was lead time, you know, now did it again, hit that upper limit of every extreme? Yes. You know, at some point we can do our best with forecasting, but one thing that I keep running into and all the research I'm constantly reading is we'll have an extreme event happen and we'll look at the data and we'll say, oh no, our climate models are not keeping up with these events. Like they're projecting rainfall, you know, rates to increase, but rainfall rates are increasing more than the models are projecting. So current, the climate is outpacing our best modeling techniques in many realms right now, which is very worrisome. As we've been sitting here talking about one additional question, I I realized this is the perfect place for me to ask, you know, a couple, I guess a couple of years ago, it was uh, a big event around here was the derecho in Iowa that came through. So I finally get to ask someone that knows how to pronounce it on whether I've been pronouncing it right for the last two years. So how do you say it? You are right. Derecho. Derecho. Okay. So (laughs) what in the world is that? And are there more of those storms going to be coming? Yes. So uh, first question, a derecho, it's, you know, we all know we hear the word line of storms or a squall line, which is just a linear, you know, line of storms that's charging, usually east. Uh, I describe derechos as a, a squall line on steroids. It's bigger, it's moving faster, and it's a lot stronger than your typical squall line. So, you know, there's official definitions out there. Meteorologists fight about them all the time because we like our definitions and then they change. But the one that I was taught is you have to have, it's usually, you know, charging at a distance of, you know, it's over a hundred miles long 
and it's producing 75 mile an hour, or we call them hurricane force wind gusts along the way. So, you know, again, that's upper echelon, 75 plus miles an hour. These things produce, you know, over a hundred mile an hour wind gusts. And now that's the easy question of what is a a derecho. The hard question is, will they become more common with climate change? Short answer, no. Uh, When you're talking about other than that geographic shift, the spatial shift we talked about with tornadoes, we can't say, you know, changing climate equals more tornadoes. And, you know, when you're talking about tornadoes, small scale derechos, all that stuff, it's the type of weather we have the least confidence in connecting to climate change right now. Now, if there's one thing that, you know, I'm starting to see trickle in as scientists study it, it has to do with another shift. So just like Tornado Alley shifting east, derechos may shift north. So again, if you follow the warmth, we keep talking about that as, you know, everything warms to the north, then we may see derechos occur farther north with time, but we can't say if they'll be more frequent yet. I think we all just need to move to Iceland because someday it's going to be yeah. climate. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's right. We're all going to be living in Iceland, North Pole with Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we have solutions anyway. We may need we a do, migrate. yes. <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you. This has been incredibly interesting and, and just, um, yeah, so uh, great to know that there's uh, people out there who understand these things, and then there's opportunities to bridge these gaps between industries and understand how uh, we can all work together to solve big problems that uh, we have no choice other to, other than to solve. So thank you so much. Um, we're nearing the end of our time here uh, today. Uh, before we do wrap up, need to ask you if uh, you two are willing to participate in our rapid fire question round. So it is uh, something a little more lighthearted that we like to wrap up here, let uh, folks get to know you just a little bit more. Uh, Only commitment, there's seven questions uh, you commit to uh, providing an answer for each one. Uh, So Crystal and Catherine, are you up to rapid fire questions? Yes, we've been nervous about this all day, but yes. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Nothing to be nervous about. Todd very much enjoys putting these questions together. So we'll see what he came up with uh, for today. So. Oh, he's starting it out with an easy one. We'll, we'll alternate asking these. But first uh, first question, what's your favorite food? Tacos. Oh, gosh, I was going to say Mexican. So anything Mexican. Oh, that makes three of us. Awesome. All right. Favorite place in the world? Switzerland. Ooh, good answer, Crystal. Well, you know, my husband's Swiss. We got to spend time there a couple summers ago. Definitely Switzerland. Mine is not that exotic, Atlanta. I loved living in Atlanta, my time there. <laughs> Very neat. Not quite as exotic, but good answer. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> to get you to a, a remote island or something. Yes, sounds great. So I was going to guess like Oklahoma in the middle of a tornado or something, but that, that would have been Se- my guess. My second answer would be Gaiman, Oklahoma. I don't know how many people listening even know where that is, but that's my favorite Plains town. <laughs> okay. Very wow. Need to check that out, learn more. So if you have siblings, where do you fall age-wise amongst them? I'm the baby. Middle. Any upgrades that you made to your home office recently, uh, perhaps related to the whole work-from-home thing, but any upgrades you've made that uh, you think are cool? You know what comes to mind for me? I was freelancing for NBC San Diego throughout the pandemic just, just to help out for a bit while they were filling a meteorology spot. And... I was broadcasting with a giant green screen from my master bedroom. 
and I had lights and cameras everywhere and I'd have to kick my husband out really early in the morning to make it to the morning show. And it was a tough time for the whole family. <laughs> wow. That's awesome though. What an incredible story. <laughs> Good stuff. Crystal has me beat. Mine's also on the broadcast side that work from home. I had all my producer equipment, like a little home production studio, but I left New York and went to spend the time with my parents. So I was producing the Today Show from my childhood bedroom, <laughs> which was, you know, very, and then I'd go down to the kitchen to get more coffee and my mother was watching GMA. So, <laughs> you know, we had a lot of this going on. <laughs> Great stories. Thank you. Who in life has inspired you the most? I thought these were going to be easy questions, like favorite food. Go ahead, Crystal. Funny. I wanted to say Catherine, and I, you know, I will say Catherine oh. because she's kept me going on this journey. Um, Catherine and my my oldest daughter, Sayla, she was born one pound fourteen ounces, and she's now in junior high, and you know, she's defied all the odds against her. And every time things get tough, I just think about where we were at one point and how far we've all come. And I know that it's all going to work out. <laughs> oh, well, I'll also say Crystal, especially since I was watching you while I was in grad school. And Crystal's not that much older than me, just so everybody knows, so I don't get yelled at later. Um, and then the second one would probably be my twin sister. You know, she is a little older than me, but we've been through a lot, um, starting from when we were babies. And that's a whole long story for another day. But she is my biggest cheerleader, my biggest advocate. Uh, we are in a a healthy competition who's going to be the breadwinner twin. It just means you buy all the dinners when we're together. <laughs> uh, but we just constantly encourage each other to be better, you know, and do better in life. Those are both incredible answers. Great. So two more questions. One of them is going to take a little bit of thought. Um, I'll hit you with that with the next. And the other one after that shouldn't take too much thought. Um, worst piece of advice you've ever received? I had something come to mind, so I'll let you think, Catherine. One of my least favorite sayings, and I don't know if it's considered as advice, but like it is what it is. I just hate when people say that. It is what it is. I'm, I'm like, no, you can make it different. You can make it better. It isn't just what it is. <laughs> um, That's good. I've caught myself saying that. That's good. I like to say yeah, I'm like eternally optimistic. So always like the best is yet to come. So I like that kind of advice. Uh, let's see the worst piece. You can, I don't know if you all can hear the sirens. Give away. I'm in New York city. Yeah. Can hear constant Where sirens. There was a shoot um, at the bottom of her building. <laughs> oh, there was, listen, it makes me stronger. <laughs> um, I think it's, it is quite personal, but I was just able to kind of pay it forward. I was told at a very young age while I was on a tour of the Weather Channel, the person is no longer there. I He wasn't there when I started working there, but I was 16, obviously looking to get into broadcast. And, and he said, you don't have the look. I would suggest pursuing something else. Oh, my God. Obviously, I didn't listen. Right. And I was very lucky uh, about a month ago, I was speaking to a bunch of students with my mentor at Virginia Tech, and he asked me to stay behind, speak to a certain student. And when I alluded to tough times with my twin sister, long story short, we were born with a facial deformity, had to have a lot of corrective surgery going on. My mentor asked me to stay behind and speak with a student who had facial asymmetry. And he wanted to go into broadcast meteorology and had never, you know, always gotten pushed back and no way are you ever going to make it and blah, 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 blah. And I told him, don't listen to them. 
you know, if that's what you want to do, you go and do it. Like Crystal said, best is yet to come follow your passion. Uh, but I was kind of initially told to not pursue my career because of how I looked. Wow. And what a blessing you are to the world now. Absolutely. So thank well, thank you. I'm pretty stubborn. I don't really listen to people sometimes. <laughs> I, so I guess that's a good thing. No, thank goodness. <laughs> and it just makes the story better. So thank you. So last one. This is the lighthearted uh, element of rapid fire. If you had to eat a crayon, what color would you choose? <laughs> <gasps> I Easy. Red. Really? Red. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I choose yellow. <laughs> Yellow, sunshine, sunny space, yellow. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Now, we've gotten yellow before. I was not expecting red. So that's. Yeah. It's. It is my favorite color, and I love. I have a very special history with a best friend about red icing roses. I don't know if you all know, like red icing can be very bitter, and not everybody likes red icing. So those roses sometimes get tossed aside, and I love that. <laughs> so I imagine a red crayon would taste like. You got that. me thinking about Valentine's Day. That's right. Nice. Well, thank you both. This has been incredible. It's a, uh, such a wonderful conversation. Um, and again, opening our horizons to what we need to be thinking about and the opportunities for uh, cross-discipline conversations on, on solving these problems facing all of us. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to uh, uh, convey or, or tell the audience before we finish? Crystal and I, we kind of brainstormed this a little bit earlier, but we, we did hit on it, but we'll put it again. Climate change is not political, it's science and our climate is changing and it's the rate at which it's changing, which is why it's different from past episodes of warming. And we just wanna get that across to people. Don't make it political because as, as, as you do that, we, we won't be able to make change, you know, to make things better. Focus on the solutions. It's not, it's not all right. doom and gloom. <laughs> right. Fantastic, thank you. So if someone would want to connect with uh, you all individually or Monarch as, uh, for partnership opportunities, how what's the best way to do that? I guess Catherine at monarchweather.com, Crystal at monarchweather.com, or you can go to our website, monarchweather.com. <laughs> Did I get that right? Yeah. Um, and we'd love to help you guys. If you need any weather or climate assistance, we're here. Just pick up the the phone and give us a ring or shoot us an email. Well, it's interesting. I'm involved in a couple of trade associations of building products manufacturers, and uh, you're going to be on my recommended speakers going forward um, because this is just a very important topic that our industry does not talk enough about. Um, our industry, um, frankly, sometimes has a tendency to push back on building code changes because they're kind of painful. You got to retool, you got to redesign, you got to do things differently. Um, but in reality, what we're hearing here is we need to be more proactive on uh, development of products and, and being able to respond to the situation. So good stuff. Thank you. We'd be happy to help be a part of that. Fantastic. Look forward to those future conversations. Uh, so thank you so much, Crystal and Catherine. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Construction Disruption with our guests, Crystal Egger and Catherine Prosiv of Monarch Weather Consulting. Uh, please watch for future episodes of our podcast. We have 
uh, many more great guests on tap. And don't forget, please, if you would, to uh, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Until then, uh, change the world for some, someone, make them smile, encourage them, uh, two of the most powerful things we can do. God bless. Take care. We'll see you next time for the next episode of Construction Disruption.